This Tailgate Society podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Deadeye Premium Barbecue Products. Born in Iowa and made in the heartland, Deadeye is your go-to source for everything barbecue. Sauces, seasonings, you name it. They've made a science out of great grilling flavor. It's more than a sauce. Whether you're cooking sliders, dogs, steak, or chicken, Deadeye has the explosive flavor needed to make every dish delicious. Try a splash of their sweet and smoky original recipe or turn up the heat with their Magnum Edition barbecue sauce. Both flavors are available in seasonings as well as sauces. So pick your favorite and prepare your taste buds for an unforgettable eating experience. Deadeye Premium Barbecue products are available at Fairway, Hy-Vee, Amazon, or at DeadeyeBBQ.com. Hello and welcome to Culture Check, a Tailgate Society podcast. Please check the TailgateSociety.com and subscribe to Tailgate Society podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'm Arnold Woods and I'm joined as always by Emily Cornell. Emily, what's going on? I'm just very excited that we made it through the NFL football season. Like mostly the Super Bowl. I was it was a disappointing game, but I'm glad we made it. Well, let's let's talk about that briefly because we're joined by TGS contributor Chris Gilliland. We're going to be talking about some black history today and and Chris teaches at some he teaches some various history courses at Chattanooga State. Um Chattanooga State Community College. Chris, do you have a, uh, an NFL team? What is your, what's your affiliation? I, I don't really do the NFL. I'll watch on occasion. Um, I was a, a little sports out on uh, this past Sunday watching some college basketball. So actually I did not watch the Super Bowl. And then especially when I saw that um, it was kind of a blowout. I was going, like, oh, yeah. okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll just, you know, stay away, stay away, watch something else. So the game sucks, yeah, honestly. Like it wasn't a good game to watch. It was relatively boring. So you didn't really miss, didn't really miss much. Yeah. Yeah. Normally I watch Super Bowl, but this, this year I just kind of skipped it and seemed like it was a good idea. Yeah. So. You didn't miss out on much. Like even the commercials, there weren't a lot of commercials that were super noteworthy. The weekend, I did enjoy the weekend's performance. I can't say it was like a total swing and a miss. So like basically, a football game happened before and after the weekend gave us a performance. It's like, Oh, what is this football game doing here? Um, but yeah, commercials pretty meh. Um, and the game of course was, I, it should have been the Packers and the bills. Like it would have been way more entertaining. It would have been a better game to watch. Like it, I don't care if they're not like the best teams, like at this point, the NFL should care about viewership. The, the Super Bowl was like the lowest viewed Super Bowl in like many years. Like people are, were not watching it. They were not having it. And I'm like, good. Maybe next it wasn't year. great. Yeah. Should have been the two teams that didn't make it. They would have been way more entertaining. They would have had more people behind it because the Packers are America's team. The Buffalo Bills are the sweethearts of America. Like, my goodness, I have very strong feelings about this. <laughs> Should have gave the backs to the refs. Should have, you know, should have finessed it so they could get the the prime matchup. Alas, didn't happen. And so we wait for next year and we wait. In my case, as a Packers fan, you, you wait to get to the NFC championship and get hurt again next year. But we'll see. Let's, let's talk about positive things. Let's talk about things that won't make me throw my computer. And yeah, so we have Chris with us. We, this is our black history episode. This is a continuation of our series with TGS members who just wanted to talk about things that interest them, pieces of culture that interest them, 
we've done it with a few people now. And yeah, this is kind of a hybrid episode. And we wanted to get into some black history topics that, you know, you're not really taught as much in school, which is basically 90% of black history. But um, Chris, I guess I wanted to ask you kind of uh, a little bit about your background. You, you know, you, you're teaching history uh, at a, at, at a higher ed, higher ed institution what kind of got you interested in, in studying history and, and what made you want to teach it? Um, I don't know. I always, uh, growing up, really enjoyed history. It was kind of one of my, my two, uh, two passions I enjoyed in, uh, in college. I actually double majored not only in history but in philosophy as well. So we won't get into that, that kind of good stuff. But um, so, yeah, so I uh, majored in history kind of uh, – dawdled around a little bit after undergrad and went to the University of Alabama where I got my uh, master's degree. And from there, I've been teaching basically at Chat State uh, for about about nine years now as both an adjunct and a full-time professor. And uh, my background actually is really not in American history. Uh, my, my focus of study both at undergraduate level, I just took, of course, some U.S. history courses, but my, my focus of study was more European-oriented, world, um, um, world history-oriented, and uh, specifically uh, English-oriented. And I did my um, kind of undergraduate work, um, kind of high-level undergraduate work, and then my graduate work focused more on the English Reformation. So I was really interested in, in religion and um Kind of the politics of religion in the 16th and to some degree the 17th centuries. But as a professor, and this is true of all history professors, I think sometimes we we, we miss out on this. We we forget this, uh, especially at your more community college level and for more your gen ed classes. They're not experts at everything. We teach a whole bunch of stuff. We know about history. We know how to study history. We know how to talk about history. But we don't take deep dives into everything that that we're going to cover, we're going to talk about. And that's especially true for me when it comes to U.S. history. I've, I've studied a lot of U.S. history, um, and now I've taught a lot of U.S. history. But I feel like as I've taught my classes, I've probably learned more uh, in doing that than I did in a lot of cases in college. But that's a problem, though, for me, too, when it comes to things like black history. That's not something I have studied in depth. It's not something that's my expertise um, or something I've been exposed to in a, uh, a significant way. And so as I'm trying to teach it, I'm trying to go along too and figure out what do I need to know that my students need to know? And what is something that uh, would be uh, significant for them to talk about? for us to understand and for me to, to talk about in my classes. And so I think that's part of what I wanted to come on here and, and discuss is, Hey, we have lots of other professors out there that have, are kind of the same way. A lot of other educators out there, we, we would love to teach about black history. We, but sometimes we just don't know about it. And it's not because we don't want to, or, or need to. It's just that it's, it's not something that we have been exposed to. And that's, that's a real problem for most Americans as well. And so I, I, I've been working on improving that. So I thought I'd come here and talk to y'all and see what, what your, your ideas were. I think this is a good entry point to our conversation 
because I work at a, at a university too. I work at Iowa state and, um, Emily, I know did some student affairs work at, um, I believe at Colorado, uh, at Wyoming, at Wyoming. Okay. So I guess I, I think this is a good a place to start in terms of, you know, students wanting to know more about black history. And, and I think that when students exit the K through 12 system, obviously they're kind of shifting their knowledge to something more specialized, something that they're more interested in for their careers. Obviously when you start college, you're going to do a lot of gen eds, but as you go further along, and even when you're early in your career and you can take electives, like you're, you're taking things that you are, are of interest to you. And so I, in, in that spirit, I guess, what was your, Emily, this is a question for you, I guess, is, you know, your experience as, you know, Chris mentioned that he went to the university of Alabama. Um, you went to Wyoming I went to Iowa State for undergrad, so three very different universities, different contexts. But what was your experience like, I guess, at Wyoming with the community of, of people that you were around in terms of um, how, how, your, how your institution kind of dealt with um, students of color and, and those types of issues? Or what, what was that experience like for you as an undergraduate student and, and the people that you interacted with? I think as an undergraduate student, I like probably underutilized a lot of the resources for students of color. Um, I was part of, like, I did this program that was under multicultural affairs, and that was the only thing I did. And that's, like, I regret it now, like, my university, like, Wyoming, um, I did undergrad and grad school there, but Wyoming does Martin Luther King Days of Dialogue every year. And so there's always, like, different activities and, like, this week they did it all virtually and it was really neat. And I'm like, man, like when I was a student, I never would have gone to this. And that's awful. Um, until like maybe grad school when I was involved in different pieces of that, where I like was on different steering committees where they're like, Oh yeah, we're planning this. I'm like, ah, yes, we're planning this. I'll be there. Like, otherwise no idea. And I think, I think Wyoming tries because it knows that it's a very, like, it's a predominantly white institution. Like, students of color make up such a small portion of it. It was the same. So I worked at Colorado um, right after I graduated. And I worked in the athletic department, another area where it's like, oh, like, a very small portion of the student body in one area, it's very concentrated. Like, how do we support these students? And I think at least for Colorado and Wyoming, like they tried, but like at the same time, there's that like, oh, we want to like help these students of color, but it's not necessarily like, oh, we need to also educate all of these white students so that they know like, hey, language matters, your behavior matters, like you, you need to be inclusive. And that doesn't just mean being like, well, I didn't say the N word today. It's like, oh, you can't make assumptions about people based off of their skin color. Like, it doesn't work. Um, so I think that in that respect, they have some work to do. But I, again, I think that's a lot of universities. It's a lot of just like spaces in this country. I could, I'm sure in other countries also, but like I live here, I'm impacted by it here where it's like, uh, yeah, we could be doing better here. We could like not be profiling Native American students when they're doing a college tour and being like, Oh, so, um, yeah, I, I think the student affairs side tries really hard to accommodate, but like also 
there are some gaps to fill. Do you all feel like, well, I guess Arnold, when you were at Iowa state and before you were working there and you knew about the resources, like it's a difference when you like work somewhere and you're like, I have to know about these things. But like when you were a freshman, you know, how was that in terms of those resources? Sure. It's funny because the program that I work for now is the main program I work for. McNair was a, a program called the McNair program, which has a focus on helping underrepresented students and first generation low income students um, go to grad school. And so I'm an underrepresented, underrepresented student, you know, racially minoritized student. I'm a second generation college student. My mom is my mom and dad are first generation students. But I could have been in the program. But it's funny because, like, at the time, I didn't want to go to grad school. So I had two friends who were in the program when I was in undergrad, and I wasn't really aware of what it was. And if I had known what it was, I'd have been like, oh, that's not really for me. But the level of support that our program provides is just, you know, to marginalized students is just so incredible. And it would have been good for me. But again, my mindset was, was such that I wasn't, I wouldn't have been accepting of it. And I know that, but I did go through the typical things that a college student of color at a predominantly white institution goes through before I, I get into that a little bit more. Cause I, I Chris, I kind of wanted to ask you about this because this is a, a great kind of segue into what Emily was talking about, but like, I, I'm curious of what the demographics are like at Chattanooga, at Chattanooga state. Like what's your, what is like, you know, student body wise and, and then faculty and staff wise, like, what is that? How is, what are the demographics like at, at the school and um, kind of what do you see down there? Um, so we are going to have uh, a, quite a few, you know, minority students because we are a community college. And so we, we traditionally cater to a lot of those underrepresented groups, but even so, um, um, kind of just general demographics, we have a predominantly white, um, student body. And so I'll have, you know, um, a handful of minority students and, um, it seems like a lot of them uh, tend to be associated with, with sports, just kind of, um, I'm not sure if that's, that's true of the, of the institution more generally, but, um, but yeah, so we, we're going to have a similar type of, of demographic as most kind of institutions that are not predominantly black institutions or uh, cater to a, a specific demographic. So, um, but again, again, we do have a lot of underrepresented students and uh, minority students. So yeah, and and that's part of my my goal here is to be able to reach out to them and to um, um, present. You know, we talk about kind of at the institutional level these types of things. Those are kind of what y'all are talking about. But I'm thinking about in my classes, like what I teach and what I do. How can I reach out to them, make them feel included, and also, you know. Um, presented as a part of everyone's history, not just, Oh, this is black history that we're going to talk about separately. This is, this is history. Yeah. So a lot of this actually aligns with my job and the, and the work mm -hmm. that I do, because I work with underrepresented students. And I think that a, a, a lot of the research that I do in my, in my grad program is focused on the campus experiences of underrepresented students and, and marginalized students in general, but I have a specific focus just due to my identity on 
um, black students and Latinx students and what they're experiencing in the classroom. So when you talk about things like in the classroom, uh, a, a big thing that I study is persistence and, you know, graduation rates and for students of color, the relationships that they have with their, with faculty, like that's a huge indicator of success for them. Like the students of color who report having positive relationships with the, with, with faculty and, um, and, 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 and campus workers, but specifically faculty, the, the percentage of them when they, when they have, when they report positive relationships with them, like they're way more likely to graduate. They're way more likely to achieve their educational goals versus if they don't have good relationships. And a lot of that is due to the fact that a lot of color, a lot of faculty in higher ed, specifically at predominantly white institutions have a sort of colorblind lens, right? Where it's like, I'm just going to, I don't, race doesn't matter. I'm not going to acknowledge all that matters is your academics and everything like that, which, you know, seems virtuous or whatever, but it's what really happens is you're erasing students lived experiences, right? At a place like Iowa state, a black physics student is going to have a fundamentally different experience on campus than a white physics student, right? It's, it's, it's there. What they look like day to day is going to be completely different. And so a large part of my work is educating faculty on identity and power and privilege and how that impacts their relationships with their students so that they can make their, their classrooms more inclusive. The historical piece of that is 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 really is really really key, and I, I want to get into that. But I know that Chris, I, I see that you you had something else you want to say. Yeah, and and one of the things that's been great about Chat State is that they are very aware of this, and it's been a a core part of a lot of of the professional developments and, and things like that, and and just simple just general presentations. Um, uh, convocation stuff like that for faculty that we talk about and it's it's the difference between kind of what you're describing of equality versus equity right the idea of you know treating everyone the same and treating everyone so that they can achieve the same thing so uh yeah absolutely that you have to realize that certain students have very different experiences they don't have the same resources so we have to provide something different potentially for them in order to get them up to uh, where that we want them to be or how they're going to be successful. So, yeah, so I, I will say that that one of the things that Tech State has been very good is making me aware and I think the faculty more generally aware. So that has been um, a very positive thing at an institutional level. I think that the historical piece comes into play with that because it, I know that I've been frustrated as an undergrad student, you know, before I got to college even, but they, when I got to college, I was really, it was a culture shock for me because I came from Des Moines and relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the state, Des Moines, Des Moines is a diverse city, not really diverse, but like comparative to like Ames, Iowa, it's very diverse. And so, you know, Iowa State's campus is like overwhelmingly white and the interactions that I would have with students, with my peers who came from like rural Iowa, who really didn't have any knowledge, any base, basic level knowledge of black history, it kind of shocked me. And the way that black history impacted our experiences. I'm, I'm curious, Emily, if that was kind of similar for you, if you got to Wyoming and you were kind of 
frustrated by people's like lack of understanding. Did that happen for you or, or what was that like? Well, so I went to Wyoming from a, another very white place. I grew up in Colorado Springs and there is some diversity there because of the military bases, but where I lived was very white. So it wasn't something I noticed immediately, but it's probably because of like the very small engagement I had when I was in undergrad with like the multicultural affairs where I was like, oh, right. Like you all don't understand that this is my experience is different than yours. Like people say different things. And then I I think by the end, it by the time I graduated, I was like, yeah, no, we are living very different lives. Um, our experiences are very different. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't as much of a shock initially, but like looking back, I'm like, I cannot believe some of the people I went to college with. Um, but I mean, like a lot of people had not like interacted with someone who is a person of color. Um, I mean, if someone was from Cheyenne or Casper, yes, but like very small towns were like, Oh, right. We don't know anyone who's black. It's like, like I remember someone asking like, Oh, like, do you have sickle cell? And I'm like, I don't understand why you're asking me this. And like, I was a freshman and I was a very dumb freshman, but like in one of the biology courses, they had gotten to that section. And I guess, you know, black people came up and they were like, you live in my building. And I'm like, I don't, I don't understand why you're asking. So I had to call my white mother and I was like, I don't have sickle cell, right? <laughs> She's like, oh my God, no. Why would you ask that? So yes, not even like the black history, just the black experience. Uh, it was, it was a, a very interesting time at Wyoming. And most of the time it ends up in stories where it's just like, can you believe that like we need to do a better job of educating people across the country? What's so interesting about that is that this is like one of the f- the first things I have in the outline, but like one of the most frustrating things to me was because I had like I had a lot of experiences at Iowa State where it was like these one on one interactions with people like that. And it was ignorance and it was, you know, racist comments. But like the, the ignorance piece is such that it's just like if you don't if you grew up in a town that was all white, like you're going to be ignorant of race because you don't have to be knowledgeable about it. You don't have to think about the implications of racism if, if you grew up in an all white town. And so that was where the, the, the frustrations for me came up, but also going beyond that is like trying to get people to understand specifically white people at at Iowa state, my white classmates to understand is that racism exists beyond one-on-one interactions, right? Like it's deeper than that. It it exists in systems and institutions like that. And the school is an institution, right? We say, we call them institutions of higher education. And so um, racism is, is ingrained in, in that institution through the people who work there and through the, what the policies are and things like that. So that once you have a better understanding of that, I think you have to be, that's when you can start to try to change things where you can try to, to, to change the systems. But if we're, if you don't even, if you don't acknowledge the depths through to which, you know, racism kind of like has a hold and take roots into place, then it's just kind of hard to, to, to get into that. So I guess my, my, my question for you both now um, is 
as as we you know kind of kind of go through our outline like what what kind of things did you want to we've been focused on higher ed i guess but like the biggest thing that that I think of when we talk about like black history and what hasn't been taught is just the fact that we, I was taught black history for the most in the home, right? Like my parents taught it to me. And so, um, going to school is kind of like what, what my question to you both is thinking back to your, your school time, elementary school, high school, middle school, whatever, what parts of black history that you learned in school, like stick out to you, I guess, before we get into the stuff that we want to, want to get into that we didn't learn what's some of the stuff that you did when you think about like black history that you were taught in school like what 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 comes to mind first i guess emily go first okay um i feel like mlk that's that is what is talked about it for black history month that is black history mlk and um rosa parks and like my like going to like public school like there was a time where my parents homeschooled me and like the curriculum that we had there wasn't like a black history section like mlk is part of it and it was a lot like i remember learning a lot of like world history in that but even when i was like in high school like you have you have those two and mlk was better than malcolm x because he was like less extreme and I'm like, okay. But like, I never thought to like question it. Cause I was like, I don't really care about history. It's all of these like dead white guys. I I have no, nothing about this is uh great for me. So that's, that's kind of what I remember learning for black history, along with everyone else who watched all the different shows for black history month. I, I'm gonna be honest. I really don't know. I can't. I can't remember. Uh, it's it's basically that MLK, Rosa Parks type of thing. So um, and slavery, of course, kind of tied into there a little bit. Um, I I did have the advantage. I did go to uh, a private Catholic school, and um, unfortunately, I uh, to my memory, I was not forced the indoctrination of the the lost cause mythos uh that was you know you know part and parcel of it but it wasn't like you know reconstruction bad early antebellum south good that type of stuff so there there was you know a a a genuineness to uh, uh to it but then again it's sort of from my memory of it the black experience is sort of you know secondary excluded it's it's not really there from what i can remember now that that's much less true in um higher ed in my uh, college curriculum but then again also didn't take a lot of modern u.s history courses and i mean if you take early u.s history pre-civil war you know mostly slavery stuff like that is is kind of the, the core of black history unfortunately as as that may be um but then kind of after that it's it's like what what do you what is there and what is is to be taught and that sometimes i think is what gets lost you sort of have black history becomes slavery reconstruction you know whatever reconstruction is and then brown versus board of education mlk why isn't racism fixed yet 
Yeah, there's like this there's like this 100 year period that kind of gets skipped over, right? Between mm-hmm. like the end of the Civil War like in the mid to late 1860s and then you just jump to in 1955 was the bus boycotts and Rosa Parks. It's like, well damn, like there is some some stuff in the middle of that for sure. I I actually think that like I'm glad that we that we got to this cuz like I think that slavery isn't really delved into enough. Ironically, like the, the, the implications of it, I guess, like we talk, it's talked about a lot, but like actually digging into what slavery was and the impact that it had on America financially and the fact that America got to get, you know, hundreds of years of free labor in order to build up its economy. And um, yeah, like there's, there's, there's a lot in that. And I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about my experience at the, at the DC Black History Museum, but Chris, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I was just, and this is one of my questions. I think, especially that I wanted to to talk with you about about Black history. When we talk about, because the way again, I teach early U.S. history and modern U.S. history, and so early U.S. history goes up basically through Reconstruction, and so the predominant part of what we're going to be talking about is you know slavery when it comes to Black history, and of course we're going to talk about Reconstruction and. Um, um, the the moment of Reconstruction where there is an effort at equality, an effort to give African Americans the right to vote and, and actually participate and everything like that, and then the tragedy of Reconstruction where it fails uh, uh, completely. And um, and one of the things I, I guess I want to I would talk about there is is what do you think is most important to understanding there? Is it the experiences of the slaves themselves? Is it understanding, you know, the mentality of the Southerners who perpetuated those institutions and, and kind of created this, um, what would become the foundations for kind of white supremacy and racism in America? I mean, what, what is most important? Is it talking about, you know, Frederick Douglass and his, his efforts and um, uh, the, the, the significant events that happen where you do have a, um, a majority black legislature in South Carolina for a brief moment in the 1970s because there was a majority black population in South Carolina at that time and African-Americans are given the right to vote in the Reconstruction era and have political power. I mean, I mean, so so I, I really don't know. I mean, I, t- I try to talk about all that. I don't know what is the most important. What do you think is the most significant in that? I have an opinion on this. But go, Emily, yes. Emily, go ahead. No, go if ahead, you, Arnold. I, you know, it's obviously you had, like you say, you have to try to talk about all of it. To me, like one of the most important things, certainly the experiences of the slaves mm-hmm. and just how brutal of conditions that they lived in under and the inhumanity that they face like it has to start with individuals and under because i think that now we look back on it we look america looks back on slavery as something that like happened that was bad and like that's it and it was just kind of like but that was just those were just bad times and so bad people existed in those times and it's like the people who were slaves did not deserve to be slaves they should not have been slaves right they were made slaves, right? Like a lot of the time the language is we stole slaves. Like, no, you stole people and made them into slaves. Um, but one of the biggest things that I think to, that goes hand in hand in that is just like the, the, the way that the country was built off of slavery. And I, I had a chance to go to, I had a meeting at the university of Maryland in, uh, 
this would have been November, I think, of 2019, um, back when we could still travel for work. Mm-hmm. And I, I flew in to D.C. and rented a car. And as soon as I got off the as soon as I left the airport, I went straight to the, the Smithsonian, the new Black History Museum. New. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been there for a few years now, but um, that's still new. <laughs> yeah. But at the, at the, it's incredible. I, 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 we don't have enough time for me to, to get into how overwhelmed I was by that museum. Cause it's just, everyone has to go black, white, whatever you have to go to this museum. But the basement of the museum is the entire basement floor is, is about slavery. And I don't think that that's, you know, an accident. I think it's kind of a metaphor about, you know, you built it on slavery and you built up and, everything like that. But like some of the stuff I saw in there and in terms of how um, people would sell bonds to each other that included slaves, right. And take out insurance policies um, that included slaves and how I saw a thing about in the Carolinas, how slave owners would pick before the, before the end of the actual slave trade, before the end of going to Africa and taking people from Africa and bringing them back to America, they would um, purposely go to places in West Africa where the soil was similar so that they could take people who knew how to till that soil and take them back so that they could grow their crops for them and so that they could make profit off of that, right? Like really sinister shit and really intentional stuff. And that's what really has to be emphasized to me is like the economy of America was based on slavery, was built on the backs of slaves. And so that leads to, you know, the civil war being fought and then reconstruction where, like you said, where, um, you know, you have black people in Southern states being elected to Senate and things like that. And that goes away very quickly because of, um, you know, there's the effort made, but the, you know, the, the racism is so pervasive that it gets taken away really quickly and how that leads to, you know, the, the backlash and the rise of the Klan and things like that. And people who are um, slave owners, Klan members get elected to Senate, get elected to Congress and shape this really racist policy. And so when you have an economy that's based off of free labor and the people who did the labor aren't able to own land, they aren't able to get jobs. They for hundreds of years weren't allowed to learn how to read or, you know, anything like that, like how that, how the vestiges of that are still felt today. Like that's one of the, the, the economic impact of slavery and the intentionality behind it. Like it was, um, economically, politically, like all those things were um, combined together to set an entire race of people, millions of people back. Like that to me is one of the, the biggest things, uh, along with obviously the horrors that people endured individually. Like there's that piece of it and going hand in hand with that is the economic impact of an entire race of people being hundreds of years behind and to still now to this point where it's, you know, generational wealth for an entire race of people basically does not exist at all. And that's because of slavery. And that's because of um, one section of America being able to build up income and, and, and the country itself being able to develop an infrastructure around this economy 
off the backs of people who got nothing from it. So like that to me is one of the, the one of the biggest things. That's my well, opinion. I, I'm not, not to disagree, but one, one thing I don't want to add onto this though, too, is I think also is important to, it's not just simply the legacy of slavery, but also the, the oppression of racism that these people were uh, in some cases you, and, and that's the problem. Again, this is the, the tragedy of reconstruction. You have these moments where you do have African-American families able to purchase land and, and try to establish themselves. And then you have Jim Crow basically implemented post. Um, I guess you could say post um, um, the, end of reconstruction 1876, but really kind of, it takes several years to really get traction. So probably by um, 1890-ish, someplace right in there, uh, just right around Plessy versus Ferguson, where it really becomes oppressive. That's when you really have this formally implemented Jim Crow. And one of the things that I've kind of learned and really started to emphasize is the brutality of the early 20th century when it comes to um, African-American experiences and and what they attempted to build and actually had a moment of, of building. And this is actually one of the things we're going to be talking about in my class here in the coming week is how bad the early 20th century really was uh, for African-Americans in the, uh, the the construction of Jim Crow. Because I think there's somewhat of this perception that you have Reconstruction and then Jim Crow. And really there is a progression to get to the Jim Crow that you see in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and that persists in the 1960s and 70s. It is constructed over about three or four decades and the 19, the early 20th century is really a, a foundational part in all of that and really taking away a lot of those gains that had been made during Reconstruction and um, just kind of completely eradicating all of that. The destruction, um, one of the things that has really kind of come onto my, my, my radar, the things that I kind of was oblivious to is the... Uh, uh, the Tulsa race, or Tulsa race, right? Tulsa race massacre. And I think that's a, you know, an epitome of that type of thing. That's something that we were just talking about in uh, the Tulsa uh, race rise. We, we talked about Watchmen. Did you, were you able to watch uh, the HBO series Watchmen? No, I didn't. I didn't. I, that's apparently uh, some of my, uh, I talked to um, a student who had taken one of my classes and uh, was telling me a little bit about it, but I didn't watch the HBO series of, of Watchmen, but that was a part of it I heard. So, yeah. So that kind of put it more, even more on my radar to learn a little bit more about it and, and include it a little bit more in my actually lectures and classes and stuff like that. It should definitely be included in any discussion because that's where you see like, okay, black people are trying to like do well, you have black wall street, and then you see it very clearly destroyed. It's not like they could be like, well, a GameStop situation happened and all of these venture firms like lost their money. Like you can't say that in this situation. Like these white people came and burned things down and killed people. And like, we don't, we don't talk about that enough where it's like, no, like this is 
you don't think that racism exists or you're like, no, like people could just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, people did. And then they got pushed back down. Like, I think that that goes along with what you're, what you're saying about the early 20th century. And yeah, Emily's completely right. Like we, you know, you have this, you have this instance of this black community that mobilized and, you know, they had businesses and everything was all good. Like they, they were living the ideal and that's happening in, in, in several places, um, not just Tulsa, but like, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then it gets like firebombed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's just that's the brutality. And, you know, you see a success of a black community and then, you know, the, the, the pervasive whiteness is like we can't allow that to thrive. Right. Like that can't exist. And so we have to take that. And I, I think about. Specific, so I was I was a um, through middle school, high school and into college, I was a very, very active member in the NACP. Um, the forerunners in NACP is the Niagara movement, right? And the Niagara movement is like early 1900s and people are just like, it's, you know, Booker T. Washington and Andrew Carnegie and, and a, a, a group of people who are just like, um, you know, one of their main issues is just like, we're getting lynched. Like black people are getting lynched way too much in this country. And like, we need to do something about that. And they, they you know, they had a, a list of issues that they, that they wanted to advance, you know, um, advance the causes for, for black people. But like one of the main ones is just like, we need, we need to figure out how to like get people to stop being lynched. Like, I don't know what we need to do, but like, let's meet and like figure that out. And like, that's the beginnings, the seedlings of, of what becomes the NAACP. And so, you know, that, so like, I think that now people kind of look at that period and they don't really know about that. And then also like the KKK, the KKK now is kind of seen as like a joke or a punchline, but like that was a very brutal life-threatening thing that a lot of people had to deal with. A lot of black people had to deal with back then. And, you know, again, like I was saying earlier, a lot of those people who were high ranking people in ACP or in the, in ACP in the KKK became politicians, Edmund Pettus, right? The Edmund Pettus bridge that they were walking over and some like Edmund Pettus was like the KKK person. And so he's in, I believe he was, he was like maybe one of the governors of Alabama or something like that, or one of the senators from Alabama. So probably that's what I mean when I say like, it's like extreme brutal racism combined with people in power, like direct, like government power being able to influence policy for wise groups of people that they hate. So that like the brutality and the politics of it go hand in hand in my opinion. Yeah. Good. Oh no, I'm just I agree with that. And um I'm I was thinking about with the KKK when you brought up the KKK, I'm like, oh we if we're gonna talk about the KKK and also like religion should also be I you know white folks in the South are like, well, like God loves me. Like, does God love you being racist? And yeah. So, uh, and this, this is a big thing that I wanted to uh, actually ask you about. Cause one of the things I've, I, I attempt to focus on and I want to know if it's, if it's really you, something you think is positive is the 
perspective of the white supremacists uh, is the perspective of this is what they believe. This is how they rationalize these types of beliefs. Do you think that is something that is, that is definitely worth teaching and worth educating students about to, to reveal it to them of, as what this, this is what they believe. A hundred percent. Yeah. Cause a lot of them hold white supremacist ideals and they might not know it. So you have to, that has to be taught so that they can recognize it because white supremacist ideals are like ingrained to America. It's like a part of American ideals. Yeah. So like that, that you, that they have to have a knowledge of that. In my opinion, go ahead, Emily, I see you're about to say something. Um, and just like how they benefit off of it. Like then they see like, Oh yeah, I definitely benefit off of white supremacy here. Like in how I can just like navigate my day-to-day life or the opportunities that are presented to me. Like, I think it's important that they understand like it holistically how it, like one impacts them and how they can like see it and like do something about it. Yeah. And, and the reason I asked this is because, you know, there's, there's a limited amount of time that I have with students, especially when it comes to discussion and stuff like that. And so uh, for example, one of the things that I'm going to be doing in one of my classes is we're going to be breaking down a speech by John C. Calhoun, basically explaining why he thinks slavery is awesome. Why you think defense of slavery and it, it it uses a lot of what we talked about here. Um, I can send you the, the document um, for you to look at. And it's, you know, I, I question myself is like, okay, so is this, because I, I, I think it is. I think it's more, um, in some cases, more enlightening for students to look at that type of thing and be like, what the hell is this person saying? Versus, you know, talking about the experiences of, of an African-American um slave at that same time because uh, because I, I, I really I, I I battle myself trying to think okay which is going to be more significant which is going to be lend greater perspective to them um, give them a greater understanding is it going to be you know telling them uh, reading a document uh, a speech from Frederick Douglass or is it going to be looking at John C Calhoun and exactly his defense of slavery which becomes which is essentially an expression of the southern defense of slavery one of the things i would say is i mean you want to include both i know that you yeah, have know. a limited amount of time and i know like frederick Douglass's fourth of july speech is like one of my favorite speeches yeah. like ever written and he talks about like how you know the reasons why like america doesn't have like america says that slaves have the same rights as animals and yet you're not writing specific laws saying that animals can't marry white women right so it's like there's this tension there between you're acknowledging our humanity while at the same time not acknowledging our humanity this incredible speech but like i think that um for, uh, the main thing i would say do you have any do you have like any guest speakers that you come that you have speech to them i don't know if other people and some of your colleagues who might, um, I've had other professors who have done similar type of, uh, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I haven't really done it in any of my classes. So, mm-hmm. um, it just depends. And, um, I've been kind of fiddling with my classes, especially since we've been, we've been doing virtual since, uh, this past spring. So it's, it's caused me to, to kind of try to, to fiddle, to, to yeah. add more and do some of these types of things. And so I do include, uh, Frederick Douglass and, um, um, some of his speeches in our online discussions, things like that. But um, that, that's kind of my, my question though, is like, 
it's hard to try to pick and choose. And so that's yeah. one of the things I'm asking. I want to ask y'all, what do you think is going to be the best thing for students for that I perspective? Th- I think somehow teaching them. So I listened to a speaker this week and they were, and they quoted someone else who I'm very bad at remembering, but um, like to be African-American um, is to be American without privilege and African without like memory. So like to somehow convey that about like, all right, all of these people were taken away from where they were brought. They were made into basically like their own culture. And then like everything stripped from them. And this is how it was stripped from them. Listen to how this man speaks about all of these, like this group of people. And that's how they lose all of this. I think that for, um, for however, and I, you, you teach an early U.S. history and a modern U.S. history course, right? Mm-hmm. So what is your, like, what your, what do you, relating to, are you see like, modern U.S. history is just, like, civil rights, like. So modern U.S. history is going to basically be, is going to be, re, I kind of start at Reconstruction and then go to our modern times. Basically. Okay. And then the other class kind of, we go to, we, we go through Reconstruction. So I kind of mm-hmm. dabble in Reconstruction. I kind of double dip a little bit to kind of mm-hmm. get, because I think Reconstruction is so so important to kind of really it's it's a good ending point for early u.s history but it's also so important that it helps shape the foundations for understanding stuff in uh modern u.s history so so yeah so um uh one of the other things i do to get to kind of talk about um modern u.s history a little bit i'll have coming up here is i uh show them clips from birth of a nation mm-hmm. sure uh and we talk about those. And I, I mean, one of the most profound things that sticks out in my head, uh, I showed to a cl- uh, class a couple of years ago. And one of my students says, was that, was that real? Were they, was it, wasn't this, were they joking? And I was like, no, they were serious about all of this. And I mean, it was like, so, I mean, it's, it's just so in your face that it's like, they, they can't be serious, right? That's how mm-hmm. some students perceive it. I'm like, no, they're, they're deadly serious about it. Again, Shown in the White House, mm-hmm. yeah. Birth of a Nation, oh. right? Yeah, so, like, right. yeah. So it goes, it goes hand in hand. Like this, extremely, it, it, you know, Birth of the Nation obviously rises, it leads to a rising clan memberships and things like that. So it's again, I make the, uh, I make the comparison that Birth of a Nation did for the clan and um, uh, yeah, the clan. What dodgeball did for middle aged dodgeballers, right? Back yeah. when first came out, right? Everyone yeah. wanted to play dodgeball. There was all these this big thing, and that's kind of what happened with the clan. And then very quickly, kind of like, oh crap! Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, it's just it's it's the way that that's what I mean when it's like racism is deeper than one on one like interactions, right? Like these things have an impact like on the broader fabric of American culture, and it leads to direct consequences for large groups of people and within the large groups, obviously individual people. So, um, the, a, a thing for me, modern U S history wise, like I, I wish I had learned more about, um, within the civil rights movement, especially it's just like the organ, the organization of it, organizing things like the student nonviolent coordinating committee, 
and um you know the sit-ins and you know you you kind of hear about what sit-ins are but like the the mobilization and the organizing that went into that the the mobilization and organizing that went into the bus boycott right where people where they pick rosa parks you know rosa parks did what she did and i love rosa parks my daughter's named after rosa parks but they picked her because she was the secretary of the NACP in Montgomery. And they're like, we can rally around her. She has a standing in the community. We can, we can use her as a way to economically impact this city. And it still took a year for it to work, but it's still like, that's the type of thing where it's like the, the planning and the meetings and the, the, the organization around these movements were, were critical in changing things. And so, yeah, like that's how, you know, Dr. King got hot because he was, you know, a young organizer with the, with the, with the Montgomery bus boycott, but that wasn't the thing where they just, you know, they marched and they sang and then things changed. Like, no, they had to, they had to lobby people. They had to organize, um, with various, um, organizations with various civil rights organizations around the time. And, um, like th- that type of thing, I think is is another thing that that students should should know about is the the level of um, the level of time and effort that went into these types of of campaigns that really were were able to change things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I'm very fortunate um, to live in a modern age because I've got some great documentaries that that really helped me with. Um, with a lot of that, um, they focus specifically on um, the death of Emmett Till, which is mm-hmm. again something that I, I was not particularly aware of mm-hmm. um, uh, until until I, I was really kind of work, getting into the, the weeds of, of trying to construct these classes and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And um, and so again, yeah, and, and how very profound that is actually in in black history mm-hmm. um, his, his kind of significance his martyrdom really um, or really kind of set the tone for um, a lot of civil rights action that happened in the wake of that and I think that's also extremely revealing the, the trial that went around it is very To Kill a Mockingbird type esque of, of yeah we know they're guilty but hey they're white we're a white jury mm-hmm. that happened so so, yeah. So, um, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that to go along with that, there are two things that you, cause there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of modern, uh, Emmett Till's. Yeah. Because I think that what we learn about Emmett Till, what I was taught about Emmett Till and not just him specifically, but he's like, he is the manifestation of the, of the knowledge that black people have that a, you can be killed for anything. Mm-hmm. You can have your life taken from you for no reason. And, um, to go along with that, the person who takes your life, if they're white, there's not going to be any repercussions for them. Like they're going to get away with it. So he's like the, he was, he's the, the fifties representation of that, but that's existed since the, the country was, was founded since before the country was officially founded, obviously. But, um, you know, that, you know, the cell phone changed the game, right? Because we, we'd known that people were, would, being killed by police for no reason. But now, you know, you can't really, you can't really turn away from that. I kind of, I kind of wanted to um, ask Emily really quick, because I know that you have this on the outline. I I wanted to talk a little bit about 
um, HBCUs. I'm wearing, you know, I'm wearing an HBCU hoodie right now. This is my mom and my sister's alma mater, Lincoln University, Jefferson City, Missouri. Um, what, what about HBCUs, uh, I guess, kind of interests you or, or do you think that people need to know more about, Emily? I just think, like, their role in getting African-Americans, like, educated, right? Like, you couldn't go to the state school, so you're going to go to a different school. Um, and so I think that's important, that, like, the significance of an HBCU. Um, I did not attend an HBCU, as stated previously. I don't think most people in Wyoming that I've interacted with know what an HBCU is. Um, but my dad attended one and he was like, Oh, like I didn't realize you would want to attend one. I'm like, okay, let's be real. That would not have been like my space, but it like one, it could have been, no, I don't think New Orleans would have been the place for me. 100%. Like what, Xavier, is that where yeah. you went? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, I don't think that's my culture, but, um, there are other ones that I'm like, man, I should have applied there just, just for the, like the culture, but I didn't. Um, but I do think that like other, just like from talking to like other, like my peers who are white and I'm like, oh yeah, it's an HBCU. And they're like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't know what you're saying. And it like, I think even older white folks I've talked to are like, no, I don't even know what that is. And I'm like, no, like, it's like a black university. And they're like, oh, right, right, right. And it like, for people to just like not know. And they're like, oh, right. Like, why can't, and this doesn't happen a ton, but when people are like, well, why can't there be a white university? Like <clears throat> there only was, that's why there are black universities. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like more than just like that talking point of like, yeah, they had to, but like why and like what it means and how it like further like push the community forward. Like the importance of education in this country is it like that is currency where you can be like, oh yeah, like I have a higher education degree and like that means something, even though it should also mean something when someone is like, they have skilled labor and it's like, well, we we aren't ready to have that conversation as a country yet because we want to be like, well, they have like an MBA and like, yeah, that person can tile floor. That's a valuable skill. If you see how much it costs, you know that's a valuable skill. For our listeners, yes, HBCU, historically black college or university, um, established for black students so they could go to college because they can get into white schools, which was, as Emily said, literally every other school. Um, a lot of problems we've been talking about MLK and he went to Morehouse and Atlanta HBCU, our current vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, HBCU alum, Howard University in, in Washington, DC. So um, she was a, an AKA. Yes. Like yes. that's another important thing to talk about is like with higher education, you also have um, the cults that youths join, also known as fraternities and sororities. Um, but like there are black sororities and fraternities. Like it's important for like the community piece, like the networking piece where it's like, oh, like you were an AKA. Okay, great. Like we can connect on this. And like people of other, you know, I Omega or Tri Deltas where they can be like, yeah, like we were in the same sorority and like it, it's meaningful, but like when 
not everyone in your community has that opportunity to move up. It's like, yeah, you did this. Oh, great. Come with me. I know, uh, Chris, I know Tennessee state is an HBCU, but I don't know. Is that near you? Are you, are you, are there any, uh, I don't believe there, there are none in Chattanooga to my knowledge. Okay. If they are, they're extremely tiny. And I, yeah. then yeah, no, uh, but there are several, uh, I believe that is near Nashville, but I don't know. I, it is, it is, it is. In Nashville. I think there's yeah. a couple actually in Nashville. Fisk, Fisk yeah, is in Nashville. Another yeah. one. Uh, they, yeah. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, Fisk too. there's a lot of, uh, uh, institutions of higher education that were very important in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Tennessee. So, um, historically black colleges. Yeah. So, um, and particularly with the, the Nashville, uh, civil rights movement, which was actually pretty early on in the, uh, in the whole sit in movement and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I, I'm painfully, painfully uninformed on historically black colleges in, uh, Tennessee and and more generally. And I, I think that is one of the things i I know what you're talking about, but it's not like I've known that my entire life, mm-hmm. anything like that. It, it's, it is one of those things. And, um, and I think looking back on my perspective, and this is part of the reason, like, like I said, I want to get y'all to, to talk to me about this is because I know my limitations, uh, when it comes to this type of stuff, because this is a, a separate American culture. It's, it's something, like I said, you start talking about, AKA you start talking about um, historically black colleges and, and things like that. And I'm like, this is stuff my students probably should know. I don't know how to include this in there. And it's something like, I, I think it's something that goes beyond what I can teach them because it's just simply, there's so much out there because then there's lots of other types of communities um, that, that likewise have, have similar types of, uh, of experiences and or institutions that white people don't know about to, to, to put it bluntly and, or, you know, kind of general mainstream culture doesn't know about. And I, I think it, it's, it's hard. And I think one of the things I, I want to try to teach my students is to be aware of that. There's a lot out there that you don't know about and to be aware that there's a lot of other experiences out there that inform other people's uh, perspectives. And so that you have to be humble when you talk to other people. And so it's hard because, you know, you, you experience that type of thing where like, what are you talking about? But then there's a lot of people who genuinely come from a position like, I just don't know. <laughs> and so... I, okay. and, that's and that's kind of what um, I kind of feel like a lot of times too. Looking back on my life, it's like I didn't mean to do that, and I just didn't know, right? That type of thing. And so, how do you, as individuals, how do you teach people to be that way about things and just be like, be inquisitive, want to know, and want to learn, and to to be able to approach others in a way that is not do you have sickle cell? That type of thing. I think that goes into teaching people how to have like empathy and tact, um, which I don't know how many 20 year olds really have that mm. mastered, but like 
just that understanding of like, okay, we're talking about this group of people. They are people that were treated like worse than livestock. Keep mm-hmm. that in mind. Like to just really hammer that in, like you need to have some type of sympathy and empathy going into this. So you can understand like how we went from slavery to now and why there's still like no type of equality or equity. I think, um, I think a good way for you in terms of like the HBCU conversation, I don't know how many of your students, um, are looking to transfer to four-year institutions, but if any of them are, are looking to do that and give them maybe, um, especially now that we're doing everything via Zoom, I would suggest like reaching out to like whatever HBUs are in your area or in Tennessee. Um, and if it's something as simple as, hey, like, I, you know, I have a couple of students who are interested, would you be able to send a recruiter to just kind of talk via Zoom for you know, 40 minutes, an hour about, you know, Tennessee state or Fisk or, or, or wherever else. Um, that would be my first suggestion. And then, um, just to go along earlier with, with what, uh, Emily said, you could, I don't, you never know. I, my sister went to Southern university, um, her freshman year in, in Baton Rouge and she, it was too far away from home for her. Um, but I, I remember my senior year at Iowa state, I went to DC and, um, there was an NACP event out there actually. And I stayed with me and a couple of my friends. We stayed with um, one of my boys who was at Howard. He went to Howard and I remember like going through their campus and we went, um, went to McDonald's one night and I went to the McDonald's and like everyone in the McDonald's was black. And I was just like, I should have come here. I should have come to Howard. I should have come to HBCU. It was incredible. Did you um, ever read between the world and me? I never finished it, but I do. I it's upstairs in my, I got it years ago and it's on my shelf right now, but I just never, I got like halfway through it and I just. Okay. So you read when he talks about Howard and he's like the Mecca. Yeah. 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 That's what they call it. Oh, I love it. And it's just like, Oh yeah. Um, you know, I think he was classmates with Chadwick Boseman actually at, uh, at Howard. So that's, you know, people who went to Howard think very highly of themselves, obviously. So that's another thing, little, you know, HBCU wars in between them. It's um, like, the, like the one that everyone's yeah. like, oh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's that, that, that would be my suggestion to you, Chris, is just kind of trying and reach out and make connections with mm-hmm. staff and other at the, at the HBCUs around you. That's crazy that your cousin went to Fisk. My cousin went to Fisk, too. I have a cousin that went to Jackson State in Mississippi. So um, I'm a big HBCU person, um, really big into it. Before we wrap up tonight, is there anything, anything big that we wanted to, to cover? Emily, I know that you have a lot of stuff. I know that we talked a little bit about Dr. King. We talked a little bit about Malcolm X. But I know that, Emily, you really wanted to go into something like Dr. King being is, you know, deeper than just the, his I have a dream speech. Oh, yes. I did make a note of that. So... And I, I, we kind of touched on this at the beginning where it's like, oh, what did, what do you remember learning? And it's like, yeah, I remember learning about MLK and I remember learning about his I have a dream speech, but like, we don't talk about like his stance on Vietnam and like how he kind of toned himself down a little bit and like how even the black community is like, you know, we have to focus on here you can't be focusing on like uh, like what's going on abroad and so like we don't talk about the 
how he is like more than this face that white people love to be like, well, MLK like believed in unity and all this stuff. And it's like, well, yes, but (laughs) you're like, you're cutting out a lot of history here when you say that. So that's more so where I'm like, I think that that, because it's a, a piece of history that like we love to latch onto. I mean, we have MLK day. Um, we should probably learn more about MLK. Like there should be more than just like, Oh yeah. Like I have a dream that the world's going to be a better place. Like, no. I, I, to, to carry on that, I do try to emphasize that in some ways. Um, um, I talk about uh, how he was perceived fairly negatively in his own time. You know, we all tend like everybody loves him now, but back in the, back in the day, like I mean, if you did a poll, I think MLK would have like a 95% um, approval rating or whatever. If you, uh, from public policy standpoint, public uh, um, viewpoint. Um, but at the time, you know, he was well under 50%. <laughs> as far as uh, approval of what he was doing or, or did he, was he bringing about unity between African-Americans and, and whites? They would have said no. Well, most people would have said no, especially in the white community. Uh, but then also a lot of his advocacy before his death was uh, about um, wealth. It was about poverty. And in fact, he was assassinated in a very very much emphasized to my student. He was assassinated in Memphis, helping to support a sanitation strike amongst largely um, black workers who felt that they were being uh, mistreated. And so he was uh, uh, expanding his his movement, his ideas of what the civil rights movement was about when he was assassinated. And so I I think it's sort of one of those things because of the nature of his death and because of the moment in when he died, he's been able to be created into this amorphous figure that even in some cases, white supremacists can latch onto as, as a figure that can be, be used. And and two things that I I do want to make mention of, because I think it's, important and something that I try to emphasize and I probably need to do a better job of it is there is resistance, not just in the South, it's across America. You see it in busing. Um, like some of the biggest resistance to busing is in like New England, like up in Boston and Massachusetts and stuff like that. So the, the black experience of, of facing discrimination and, and resistance to integration is not just in the South. It's, it's everywhere. And you see that again throughout the 20th century. Uh, the Red Summer in 1919, that type of stuff, which I, I, I probably should talk a little bit more about because I think it's, it's important. And then also this fictitious idea that there has been a um, – that there has not been – outrage or or protest or, or violence even when it comes to racial things for you know since recently and you go back to like the 90s you have the rodney king riots and and so on and so forth and so there's this kind of this fictitious narrative of of things have been hunky-dory because we tend to forget that there was all this other stuff that was that was going on and um yeah. So, I, I mean, and then one last thing I, I, I do try to make connections to, which I think is 
very important is the Mississippi Constitution of 1890, which I will, I'll send you some excerpts that, I, that my students and I go over. And it sets up the conditions for uh, the poll tax, literacy tests, and things like that. It becomes the, what, what is known as the Mississippi Plan and uh, implemented across the South for uh, as a concerted effort of disenfranchisement. And when you look at the actual document, it's pretty benign. It's not like saying, hey, we're making sure that African-Americans can't vote or anything like that. It is like, hey, we should put a tax so we can have funds for schools. And hey, we should have this, this test for literacies to make sure that, you know, people are educated who can actually, who vote. And, and you think about that and you think about comparisons to voter registration, voter IDs. It's like, okay, what are the effects of this on the actual voting population? Who is this disenfranchising? Even if it's not intentional, is that a problem? And more importantly, is it intentional as it was with these laws? And should we see compare make comparisons to those types of laws, and and look at the, um, you know, there's the the noble effort, quote unquote, of preventing voter fraud, which everyone says, you know, is a is a good thing to prevent voter fraud. But what is the real rationale? Is there a real underlying some kind of different rationale, or is there, you know, um, unintended consequences, quote unquote? for this disenfranchising people who could legitimately vote who are legal voters and and how do we weigh those types of costs so like i said there's a lot to unpack and a lot i wish we could talk more about and and i like i said i hope i'm getting at the black experience and everything like that in subtle ways if not overt ways but it's it's not easy being like i said a white person coming from a very different perspective i think that um one of the things with Dr. King is to, and even what you're talking about with poll tax, you know, we, we're in a, a time where not that long ago, just a few years ago, um, it was decided, you know, well, we don't need to restore the Voting Rights Act because we've come so far from racism that it's all good now, which obviously, you know, is not true. And people have fought against that. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the things that Dr. King was, was talking about, even in his dream speech, right? In his dream speech, he has a line, something I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, you know, America is an island, an oasis of wealth, but black people are in like a desert of poverty. And so, you know, there, he was talking about, you know, mass poverty um, throughout a lot of his his campaigns and his, his, um, his organizational work. And then, yeah, obviously he was doing the poor people's campaign in Memphis and he was very focused on like met the mass poverty of, of America before he died. And, you know, we're in a situation now where we have that here, we're in a pandemic, but we also just have like this massive like wealth gap. And so there's a correlation between the massive wealth gap and the, and the, the class inequity and also racial inequity, right? Like those things go hand in hand. And so, yeah, like the, the, the issues that Dr. King was talking about are modern issues and he could, you know, conceivably still be alive if he hadn't been murdered, right? He'd be very old, but he was only, he was younger than my grandmother 
and my grandmother passed away in, in, uh, in 2019. So, um, these, these things didn't happen very long, that long ago, and they still impact us today. And for, as far as you go, Chris, I think that the, the best that you can do is to just, um, make it relevant to what they're going through now, because it is, you know, and, um, understand that any, <laughs> any, you know, 16 week course, 14 week course isn't going to cover the entire breadth of black history of the black experience, but you know, you, you get the major points in where you can, I guess. So, um, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for, for coming on here and, and being a part of this. Um, Emily, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I'm glad that you brought this topic up. Like, like you said, it's something we could talk about a lot more, but, um, yeah, it was great having you on. Good. Good. I I enjoyed it. Like I said, I just kind of trying to get some different perspectives on what to do and how to, how to keep going forward. And, and, you know, knowing that I have a very particular insulated perspective and I need to, to expand that out as best as I can to make sure that I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. So. Well, thank you again. Thank you to our listeners for listening and uh, we will see you next week. Thanks y'all.